This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Don't you understand? It doesn't have to be like this. You have to help. It's gotten out of control. It's too big. It is time to launch a new war against the evil of lies, deceit, and darkness and go all out to win the victory of truth and transparency and light. Sure, go ahead. Believe everything you see on television, everything you read in the newspaper. Go ahead. Get your history out of the Encyclopedia Britannica. Yeah, that's right. Oswald killed Kennedy. Yeah, sure he did. Man, you are living in Disneyland. Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome to the broadcast. And if talk radio was an Olympic sport, this show would own the podium, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Do you remember that? Own the podium. That was our clarion call here in Canada for the 2010 Winter Olympics. I don't know if that's still the the the, uh, the mantra or the mantra uh, for uh, 2012. So far, we've got a bronze medal, Canada, a bronze medal in synchronized diving. Uh, now, admittedly, I'm not a huge... Um, uh, fan of the Olympics, but uh, the mighty Aphrodite is uh, basically incommunicado. She is glued to the TV set for the next, is it what, 17 days? Uh, and uh, I mean, I have to communicate to her like using like cinephore or something because she will not speak. She will not eat. She will not rest for the next 17 days. She's watching the Olympics um, every waking hour and then even in her sleep. I believe. Uh, but she was uh, glued to the set watching uh, us take uh, a bronze in synchronized diving. And uh, to me, though, the great story of the Olympics is uh, this 14-year-old student. Have you heard about him? Marios Hatsidimu. He won a, a, um, a letter-writing co- competition. It's called the 41st UPU Letter-Writing Competition for Young People. They were asked to send a letter to an athlete or a sports personality they admired it and, and tell them what the Olympic means, the Olympics means to them. And uh, I've actually tweeted that, uh, if you want to read his letter, absolutely uh, brilliant and just elegant in its simplicity and its innocence. Uh, everything that the Olympics should be, he, he, he really pours into this letter to Roger Federer, who is his idol. And um, the mighty Aphrodite had a brilliant idea. For the closing games, they have, again, the Parade of Nations. And this young man, Marios Hatsidimu, should be carrying the uh, the Greek flag into the Olympic Stadium because the, what he writes in that letter really embodies what the Olympics are supposed to be about, once what they were once about uh, before uh, a doping and steroids and, and um, scandal, basically. Scandal. Uh, we're going to talk about um, perhaps the biggest scandal in all of history. 
here in the uh, early going of the program. But before we get to that, let me welcome a new affiliate uh, for The Conspiracy Show and a big, big hello to WKAC 1080 in, I believe, Huntsville, Alabama. WKAC 1080 Huntsville, Alabama. Yes. Welcome aboard. Good to have Alabama uh, with us. And uh, what is Alabama's uh, state motto? Um, we'll have to look that up, and we'll have that for you before the end of the show. I mean, you know, Pennsylvania is the Keystone State. Uh, Michigan is the Wolverine State. Uh, Tennessee, the Volunteer State. Alabama. David Gaskin, my technical producer, you look that up. That's your homework assignment. All right, I mentioned the biggest scandal in history. That sounds like hyperbole, you're saying. Well, wait till you listen uh, to this story. Now, we have touched on this uh, very important topic in the past. We didn't give it enough time. We're going to revisit it again tonight. And uh, this has to do with $27.5 trillion dollars. I think I have your attention, right? 27, 27.5 trillion dollars. And a gentleman who holds the financial golden key to that money, this gentleman says he held this money in public trust for the American people. He wants to give it back. Lord knows they could use it right about now. The real problem as it stands today, though, is it remains in limbo because if he tries to return it to the U.S. Treasury... It will be immediately hijacked from the American people, put into the private Illuminati bank account, uh, since under the present Federal Reserve and the national banking system, there are no laws protecting the American people's money. We're going to talk about Ambassador Leo Wanta and the missing $27.5 trillion right here, right now on The Conspiracy Show. Marilyn Magruder Barnwall began her career as a journalist with the Wyoming Eagle in Cheyenne. During her 20-year banking career, she wrote extensively for the American Banker, Banking or Bank Marketing Magazine, Trust Marketing Magazine, and other major industry publications. The American Bankers Association published a Barnwall's Profitable Private Banking, The Complete Blueprint, in 1987. She taught private banking at Colorado University for the ABA and trained private bankers in Singapore. And she is the author of when the swan's neck breaks. Marilyn Magruder-Barnwall, welcome to The Conspiracy Show once again. How are you? Well, I'm terrific. I just watched Missy Jackson win the, uh, the 100-yard backstroke. Wow. In her, in her category. I'm with, I'm with the, the goddess. or The uh, mighty Aphrodite. <laughs> have, you, have you read this, uh, this letter from this young uh, 14-year-old boy? No, I haven't. Oh, well, I'll email it to you because it's Ooh, just, it's, it's, it's everything, uh, you know, it's heartwarming to see uh, uh, someone of that age who really is holding up the, the ideal of the Olympics, not just the Olympics, just everyday living, you know, life and the way we should be conducting ourselves as humans on this planet. Exactly. All right, let's, let's just dive right in because time is uh, always of the essence. Leo Wanta, uh, it, tell me a little bit about uh, who he is and was. I'll tell you, whenever someone asks me to explain who Lee or Leo Wanta is, it feels like I'm trying to get my arms around the wind, Richard. It's such a complicated story. Probably the hardest job I have tonight is trying to simplify it into understandable conversation within an hour time constraint. Um, he's one of the most interesting men in the world, uh, 
and his life experiences sound something like a good fiction writer would create a little James Bondish, uh, if you will, and I'll take a cue from the Queen. But uh, let me say this about what I hope we talk about tonight. Lee is the man who, by bringing down the Soviet Union ruble, and that's been proven beyond a doubt, caused the Iron Curtain and, and the Berlin Wall, uh, Checkpoint Charlie, to come tumbling down. Um, this is the guy who created the largest fortune ever amassed by one person. Um, he created $27.5 trillion and wanted to give $23 trillion of it to the American people to pay off the oh, irresponsible, there's no word for what it is, the debt uh, of today's Federal Reserve and a lot of corrupt politicians, frankly. The point is, when he, when he served as President Ronald Reagan's personal intelligence coordinator, um, he promised Reagan he would bring down the Soviet Union ruble, which he did, and he would invest and save the profits from that endeavor to pay America out of debt when the overspending crooks in government put my nation into bankruptcy, and that, that time would be now. Mm. And, and give us a time frame. We're talking about the Reagan administration, so somewhere, somewhere between 1980 and the fall of the Berlin Wall in uh, 1991, correct? Uh, the, the Berlin Wall fell in 91. Um, the Iron Curtain came down. The ruble went down, I believe, in 89, unless I'm... Now it would have been about the same time. But, <clears throat> yeah, in that time frame. And, and the reason it covers such a long time frame, Richard, is because uh, this all started with the presidential task force. Um, Lee, Lee's story involves a lot of well-known people like Hillary Clinton and Vince Foster and George Herbert Walker Bush and his son George W. and William Clinton and Barack Obama, Dick Cheney, Dan Quayle, Vladimir Putin, George Soros, Al Gore. He was involved with all of them, and his story is filled with intrigue uh, that involves the Soviet Union, Stinger missiles, Osama bin Laden, or Tim Osman, as Lee says he was known when bin Laden was a CIA agent. Um, and, and I need to say this, too. Ambassador Wanda has two first names. His birth certificate name is Lee. His uh, baptism certificate was Leo. And when he went to get his driver's license when he was 15 or 16, the, whoever it was at the driver, driver's bureau told him Leo was a more masculine name, and so that's what he put on his driver's license. And that was the name he used as a, a covert agent. All right. He does sound a little bit like James Vaughn. For those of you who have been following the Olympics and watched the opening ceremony and Daniel Craig, uh, our new James Bond, perhaps one of the best, uh, yeah. had a, a wonderful little comedy moment with uh, with Queen Elizabeth. Um, but uh, the, Leo Wanta, or Lee Wanta as the case may be, uh, sounds like... A real-life James Bond. Uh, joining us on the line is Marilyn Magruder-Barnwall, and she's here to tell us about Leo Wanta and the missing $27.5 trillion. Uh, has been described as the biggest scandal 
uh, in the world, in history. Now, uh, how did he orchestrate the collapse of the Soviet Union's ruble? How was this done? In simple in t- terms that uh, uh, a layman uh, could understand, someone who yeah, didn't graduate from Harvard Business School. Simple way to, to talk about it. Uh, okay. Through, uh, you've got to get there. What made it possible? Okay. And that takes us into the presidential task force. All right. The task force began meeting in 1981. This wasn't something someone just went in and sort of heroically did in one minute. The planning on it started in 1981, and it didn't happen until 1990. So it was a lot of planning. The presidential task force uh, was made up originally of Bill Colby, who was um, CIA director in the 70s, I believe, uh, 76 through 79, something like that. Then Bill Casey, who was Reagan's um, CIA director, and Lee Wanta, Leo Wanta. <clears throat> I also have to make clear that Lee never worked for any of the alphabet agencies. He never worked for the NSA or the CIA or any of that. He was covert. He worked by contract. He was never employed as an employee of any of those agencies. Um, But how do we get into it? How did he generate the 27.5? Let's go into the preparation that came out of the task force. Right. Okay. on March 23rd, I believe it was, Reagan gave a speech that about Star Wars. You remember Star Wars? Oh, yes, the Strategic That's Defense the Initiative. Yeah. Let's, let me uh, just uh, get you to hold on there. Uh, I want to get some business done here and uh, on the other side. Not that we're talking $27.5 trillion, but, you know, bills must be paid. On the other side, Marilyn Magruder-Barnwell will explain how Leo Wanta brought the Soviet Union to its knees and made the American public 27.5 or about 23 trillion actually to boot. Uh, Where is that money now and uh, why is it in limbo? Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Don't you dare go away. Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Welcome back. Marilyn Magruder-Barnwall is with us. We're talking about Leo Wanta and the missing $27.5 trillion. And uh, we'll have... um, uh, Marilyn has sent along to me uh, links to a number of uh, documents. If you'd like to follow up on this, because uh, an hour is certainly not nearly enough time, but it'll certainly pique your interest anyway, this this program. And you can, uh, as always, we encourage you to dig further and dig uh, independently and... uh, and, You've got to take what you hear here and and, and uh, decide for yourself uh, whether this is all true. Uh, but the documentation is, is there. We'll provide that to you uh, on the website, uh, richardserrett.com. Now, we were talking about the, the presidential task force, and the, the idea here was to, I guess, bring uh, the Soviet Union to its knees and uh, enter Leo Wanta with this scheme. Well, it wasn't a scheme. It was a presidential task force that was put together by President Reagan. And it was uh, after the initial meetings between William Colby, William Casey, and Leo Wanta 
other intelligence agencies were brought into it. And then when President Reagan, when this was happening in between the time of the election and when he took office in January um, of that year. And in March, as I said, he gave a speech about SDI, Star Wars. Well, so what's important about that? Reagan knew, first, we, they had to find a way to destabilize the ruble to begin with. The Soviet economy was never terribly strong. But so what they did was they used Star Wars. They knew that they could, that if Soviet Union would be drawn in to a, this race with the United States to develop Star Wars-type technology, that it would, to some degree, destabilize an already weak economy. That was an important part of the plan. Then on December 4th of 1981, still the first year of his presidency, Reagan <clears throat> did a, a, another preparatory step. Um, he signed Executive Order 12333, which was key to this. It's known as Title 18, Section 6 of the United States Code. At this executive office, uh, EO, <laughs> I'm going through this so fast, uh, authorized U.S. intelligence services to create or establish corporations owned by the U.S. government for intelligence purposes. So, in other words, American spies could, because of this EO, covertly establish and, and operate at taxpayer expense these companies. And Leo Wanta uh, implemented numerous of those companies, about 25 or 30 of them that I recall. But the one that was involved with the Russian ruble was New Republic, and it was located in Vienna, Austria. Um, he and members of his team began meeting with people representing nations that did business with Soviet bloc nations, like Iran and Iraq, for example. They sold oil to the Soviets. Um, nations that were part of the Soviet bloc or the, these numerous nations that traded with them were paid in rubles, and the ruble couldn't be used outside of the USSR. So it was a huge weakness that they had uh, identified during these task force meetings, I guess, to create the plan. Uh, the money had to be used inside the Soviet bloc. Well, there were a lot of people. You can verify this, by the way, by reading uh, a book published by Simon & Schuster in 1994 called Thieves' World. Uh, by Claire Sterling about uh, what was going on. And, and there were numerous nations, numerous people trying to get rubles out of, the, out of the Soviet Union. But the plan that emerged from this task force focused on what I perceive as an end run, end run kind of, you know, like when a quarterback hands off and somebody runs in the backfield kind of thing. Sure, like a diversion. Yeah, okay. But what they did was they focused on the nations that were doing business with the Soviet Union that had very limited use of rubles. Okay. And this can also be verified, by the way. Um, in January of 81, uh, the Russian government did a, a criminal case number, 18... 
slash 5922-91. This was their investigation into what happened to their own market. And according to this final report, um, the, the newly formed Russian Federation was practically invaded by Western businessmen, and uh, Lee Wanta succeeded while the others failed because he got a signed agreement with the new federation. I've got a copy of that agreement. It's signed by uh, Gennady Filchin, the Russian deputy prime minister at the time. <clears throat> and uh, in October, I told you this is a hard thing to say in interesting language, but Wanta proposed a swap of five billion U.S. dollars for 300 billion rubles, which would be 28 rubles to the dollar. Uh, that was half of the black market rate. And his offer increased over a period of five years where he would pay 50 billion U.S. dollars for 300 billion rubles. Now, the third part, by the way, of Reagan's plan, he gave Leo Wanta was made trustor of $150 billion to accomplish the bringing down of the Soviet Union ruble, the SUR. Um, that money, by the way, was paid back by Wanta to the United States Treasury within six months of the time he got it. Um, anyway, he... Um, the thing that attracted the Russians to what Leo Wanta was offering, and it's documented by Russia's own commission of inquiry, he offered to spend the dollars to import Western goods for what he's often said to me, called them, called it an emergency situation. He said the Russian people literally had nothing when the Soviet Union fell, and and he requested an immediate line of credit from the Soviets of 140,000 rubles to invest in the new Russian economy. And he, he told me he brought everything from Tampax to frozen chickens into Russia. Um, he also said it was the right thing to do for the people. Uh, this was after they, the collapse. This is nothing. afterwards. Right. This is after the collapse. Yeah. Okay. And, and this was, well, the collapse was caused by the right. by the rubles going out of the out of the country he said that new republic his comp his uh, company in uh, vienna austria was just able to get boatloads of rubles from the ussr and on average it cost them from 18 to 28 cents per ruble and and at the time the um ruble was valued by the Soviets at a dollar twenty per so, ruble. So again, what was so attractive to them? Why were they willing to depart with the ruble at half the uh, the black market price? Well, they were very much in the same circumstance, Richard, as the United States is right now. If you had, if you were a pension manager and you had your pension funds in a dollar, and someone came around and gave you an opportunity to put them in the Chinese yuan or the renminbi you probably would take them up on it since our currency is depreciating like crazy while the yuan is strengthening okay that's what attracted them so even though it was half the pri the half the uh, the black market price they saw the ruble going nowhere but down and the us dollar going nowhere but up 
That's right. So they gambled and uh, thinking they're going to come up on the upside, obviously. Okay, so that makes sense. they obviously did. Right. Uh, I mean, basically, you can look at American pension funds today and say they're in the same kind of danger. Sure. That the that the Soviet pension funds, and, and Lee said that that he got money from the KGB pension fund, the GRU pension funds. He got them from all kinds of people. They basically were put into Brinks trucks, taken to Holland, packaged, sent to the uh, bank in Singapore, uh, and they would go and. He would go into uh, Singapore, uh, the development bank. That's what I couldn't think of. But they, I, one occasion, I know they sent $70 billion in Soviet Union rubles to the, the, this development bank of Singapore. And um, the Soviets argued about the $1.20 a ruble, not knowing, of course, that he had gotten them for 18 to $0.28. Cents. And... They ended up agreeing to pay only a dollar eight, and they thought they were getting a really good deal because they didn't want to pay the dollar twenty per mass. I mean, they were the ones who put the value on it. They wanted a deal, and uh, so that's how they did it. Well, then they took that money and they went to the countries, and this was the key. They went to the countries who owed money to the Soviet Union in rubles. And they sold those rubles to those countries, like, like uh, Greece, right? And said, "Here, I'll give you rubles for thirty-two cents on the dollar for you to pay your debt to the Soviet Union." So they were making four cents per ruble. Oh, they were making far more than that. Well, they bought it at twenty-eight cents, and they're selling it for thirty-two. In that case, yeah, but uh, yeah, that. The other case, they were buying it for 18 to 28 cents and selling it to the Soviet government for a dollar eight. Right, right, okay. Okay, so you've got two different situations. But the importance of the second one thing is when they, when these com- countries began paying their debt to the Soviets with rubles that they had purchased for 38 cents, on the ruble, or 38 rubles on the dollar twenty value, it it totally depreciated the value of the ruble, and it fell. Ah, okay. Okay, right, and right. in the meantime, then um, that was really the the big blow. But when the currency hit bottom. <clears throat> Excuse me. We have high humidity, and I have asthma, and I'm going to be clearing my throat. I apologize. There's a you. lot of that going around, especially with the yeah you know, the humidity, the air conditioning. So you're among friends on that score. <laughs> but when when the the currency, when the Soviet ruble hit bottom, um, the the system, the whole Soviet system needed cash, and Leo Wanta went through New Republic and agreed to purchase 2,000 metric tons of gold from the USSR Central Bank using dollars created from the sale of the rubles that had cost him only 18 to 28 cents each. Right, right. So on average, a 78, 75% discount from, from the actual cost. <clears throat> and uh, uh, the money used to buy the 2,000 metric tons of Russian gold 
and that belonged to Leo Wanta personally. Ah, okay. And so does the, the gold he bought with that money. And, and I want to go back to the breaking up of the $27.5 trillion. The total amount was 27.5. Of that amount, $4.5 trillion belongs to Lee Wanta personally. $23 trillion of that money belongs to the American people. In reality, the entire 27.5 belongs to Lee Wanta. But he is the one who insisted that $23 trillion of it go to the American people. His 4.5 is a commission contract that paid for all those years that he was doing life-threatening things for the United States government. I mean, he was the one who went over and got Stinger missiles back from uh, Osama bin Laden, who, by the way, his CIA name as an agent is Tim Osman. Tim he Osman. He was the one who went and got those Stinger missiles left over from the Kuwaiti war. Listen, that uh, the Osama bin Laden angle is... Uh uh, perhaps the subject of an entirely different show that you and I can do together. But let's uh, let's just uh, hold on, stay put, uh, Marilyn. When we come back, we'll uh, delve further into the mystery man, Leo Wanta, and that missing $27.5 trillion. Don't go away. Fasten your seatbelt and put your tray in the upright position. You're about to leave everything you know behind on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Leo Wanta and the missing $27.5 trillion. Listen, I'm no Ben Bernanke, uh, so let me, let me try and summarize here in, uh, in layman's terms, uh, just to bring people up to speed if you're just joining us. So a presidential task force... Uh, in 1981, Ronald Reagan basically, uh, 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 Colby, the head of the CIA at the time, who um, mysteriously, I think, turned up face down in the Potomac River. Maybe maybe that's connect. there's a connection there. Maybe not. We'll find out, perhaps. Timing al- time allows, if time allows. Uh, but uh, so, so Leo Wanta is, is charged by this, uh, this um, task force to, to go out and try and bring the Soviet Union to its knees uh, and then through a, an, a series of sort of currency swaps, he depreciates, he manages to depreciate the Soviet ruble while at the same time amassing a huge fortune, then uses uh, that money to buy from the Soviets, who are cash-hungry now at this point, uh, was it 22,000 metric tons of gold. Right. Now, we're talking now uh, late 80s, early 90s. Now, gold was around, I think at the start of the 80s, was, was closing in at around 900 an ounce. Now, by the end of the, the 80s, early 90s, it, it had, you know, it was around 400 an ounce. Right. So, so, and that it was the early 90s that, that he bought it. I believe it was 91. But the other thing he did with the money, and this is just a fast last thought on how did he get all this money, uh, he took the remaining cash and, and he bought prime bank guarantees, which when you're buying them with very massive amounts of money, he was able to get 7.5 uh, interest on 10-year plus one-day maturities. Wow. Um, and his company, New Republic, was buying them at like a 66, 68% discount par value per $100 million. 
and they could either loan against them or sell them or transfer them at 88 to 92%, which meant they were making $20 million par value per $100 million invested. And, Richard, they were doing this over and over and over again. Every hour on the hour, Lee said. My word. Um, it generated a tremendous amount of money, and that is how Lee Wanta created the $27.5 trillion. One thing I want to correct, I, I, though I am a journalist, I started out that way, and that's what I went back to uh, in 1993 when I became disabled. My graduate degree is banking, and I was a banker, not a bank journalist. Um, I created the first private bank in the United States and consulted for that. And this is all, I hope that that communicates it well enough because I know we bankers tend to talk in terms that are hard. I think people grasp the sort of the, the, uh, the broad strokes, which is all we can hope for in an hour. Now, what did he do with all that gold, 22,000 metric tons? He uh, took it to Singapore and they melted it into 12.75 kilogram bars, 12.25, I can't remember. And it was uh, hidden in Kloten, K-L-O-T-E-N, Switzerland. And then he just waited for the, the the price of gold to go up, I guess, which it did invariably, inevitably. Well, um, I, it's hard to know what he would have done with the gold because on July 7th in 93, his world got turned upside down. And uh, I need to go back to when they decided he was going to be the leg man for this event, for all this that was going on. When that became evident, somebody who was involved in that presidential task force was leaking to someone else because Wanta was set up in Wisconsin on a bunch of absolutely nonsensical um, tax warrants that were issued against him that had nothing to do with him. And, Richard, I have every one of the court transcripts, and, I mean, it fills five large legal-sized books. And I've read them, and I've read them again. And there is no way to come to any conclusion other than he was being set up in 1981 for whenever they wanted to take him down and, and get their hands on the money because they could see what was going to happen. And on July 7, 1993, the state of Wisconsin used these unlawful, they literally are unlawful, tax warrants that had nothing to do with Lee Wanta. They had to do with a company called Falls Vending Services, Inc., and filed against him as if he were responsible for that company's debts. That started in 82, and that went on, and I, I just read this, and I look at it and say, what in the world? And it took me going through it twice to figure out that he was being set up way back then. In other words, they wanted to, to get all the, the paperwork in order in the early right. 80s, but at the same time, let him go out and make that vast fortune. Uh, then, uh, when that money, had that fortune had been amassed, then they bring out the um, these false warrants, as you say, and right. in, in in order to, I'm presumably, I'm presuming to get that money away from him. That's right. The That's exactly what happened. All right, we'll pick up on that point on the other side. Marilyn Barnwall is with us as we continue to discuss Leo Wanta and the missing twenty-seven point five trillion dollars. Stay with us. I'm Richard Serrett.
You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Marilyn Barnwall is with us, the author of When the Swan's Neck Breaks, and we're talking about uh, Leo Wanta and the $27.5 trillion. So these trumped-up charges, um, uh, I guess from the, was it the Wisconsin Department of Revenue officially yeah. that laid the charges? Uh, for what? Essentially a trumped-up charge of, of tax evasion or, or fraudulent concealment or something like that? Well, yeah, they basically were saying that he uh, evaded taxes, and uh, which was totally untrue, totally untrue. And, and that I've got the written evidence loud and clear on. They arrested him. He was paying a breakfast bill. He was meeting with Vince Foster that day at uh, the hotel, oh, he was in Geneva, I can't remember the name of the hotel. Uh, Lee was staying with a bunch of other people at the Hotel Alak. Uh, he had uh, uh, all kinds of people there with him. And he had been appointed in April of 93 as ambassador to Switzerland and also to Canada by the nation of Somalia. And... His, That's uh, a strange chapter. investiture, by the way, was witnessed by the foreign minister of France under the Sarkozy administration, um, Alain Juppé, the Honorable Alain Juppé. Uh, I believe he was a former mayor of Bordeaux. In fact, I think he was the mayor of Bordeaux when that investiture occurred. That's kind of a strange assignment. Uh, uh, ambassador for Somalia to Switzerland and Canada. I mean, uh, I, not that we have time, but... Uh, uh, <laughs> that's an interesting appointment, one would have to say, but um, we'll save that one for next time. Yeah, okay. <laughs> but anyway, they, uh, you know, the, the fact is he told the Swiss that he was entitled to diplomatic immunity when they arrested him because he had been told, and again, I believe this was part of the setup, and this is me, not Lee, this is my opinion, that uh, the FBI or, or his, his handler, I don't know what else you call them, um, in New Orleans, told him to take with him all of his records. He, his partner had died in um, Singapore. He didn't die. He was killed. Howie Kwong. Yeah, Howie Kwong was, uh, Howie Kwong was murdered with rat poison right after, two weeks after a president of the United States, a former president, visited the bank that Howie and Leo Wanta owned in Singapore, and uh, looking for the, that money. Yeah, the result of that was that Vice President Dan Quayle got him out of Singapore into a safe house in Toronto. As a matter of fact, interesting. Okay, always looking for that Canadian connection, and there we have no, it. No, I've got that Canadian connection. <laughs> I'm in you. touch with them. I've verified. I can tell you, I have verified almost everything we're saying. I mean, verified beyond a point of doubt. Some of the things, uh, when it involves secret mission stuff, I don't have access to all the documents, but I have access to some of Lee's field reports and things. I'm just trying to figure out who's wearing the, you know, the, the, the white hats and the black hats. Maybe nobody. Maybe they're all wearing gray hats. But when you say Dan Quayle uh, is, is helping um, uh, Leo Wanta, I, I guess the, what I'm asking is, is well, who then is trying to get their hands on the money, and who's trying to protect this this trust for the American public? So it sounds like, are you saying Quayle and, and the Bushites are are trying are in, in Lee's corner? Well, uh, Dan Quayle, 
was in his corner. I wouldn't say Bush was. Um, if you go, I, I, uh, if you go to the blogspot wtsnbblogspot.com, you will find a writ of mandamus there, and in that writ, here are the people that Lee listed uh, as being responsible for um, tying up the 4.5 trillion. And, that, and it'll give you an idea of who he believes was involved in all this. The Secretary of the Treasury, who at that time was Paulson, Henry Paulson. The Attorney General of the United States, Gonzalez. Bank of America, J.P. Morgan Chase. Citibank Citigroup. Goldman Sachs. The United States Department of, of the Treasury, um, including but not limited to Secretary Paulson. Deputy Secretary Kemet. Uh, and others, Secretary Chertoff, the Department of Homeland Security, mm-hmm. uh, some compliance officers, and the Federal Reserve Bank of, of uh, in this case, in the case of the lost funds, uh, the Federal Reserve Bank. But he, this happened, he gave Vince Foster $250 million that day before he was arrested. And the money was for Hillary Clinton for the Children's Defense fund. And Vince Foster, of course, was killed in less than two weeks. I'm sorry, he committed suicide in Marcy Park with no weapon around him. He was um, suicided, in other words. Yeah. And that's that's connected to Leo Wanta? Yes. Well, I, to the degree of saying Leo had just given him uh, $250 million on the 7th of July and I believe it was the 19th or 20th of July that uh, it was within two weeks right. that Foster was killed. And, and if you'll recall, there was a big to-do about uh, Hillary and Bill would not let the authorities go into Vince Foster's safe until they went into it first because for national security reasons, quote-unquote. Remember that? Yes, I do. In other words, add Hillary and Bill Clinton to the list of those that were trying to get their hands on uh, uh, Leo Wanta's $27.5 trillion. That's right. Okay. Just because we're short on time, I know we're we're skipping over some things, uh, including um, Leo's arrest and uh, being brought back to uh, Wisconsin uh, in violation of the law, arrested in New York, and, and these sorts of things. But... What what efforts was he was he making to get that twenty seven point five trillion or, to, or we should say twenty three trillion back into the U S Treasury? Well, he was trying working on the entire twenty seven point five. He ended up agreeing to accept four point five, which was on contract in writing that they clearly owed him, and and so on. That money, the four point five trillion, was wire transferred by the Bank of China, People's Bank of China, which is their central bank into the United States, into the Bank of America in Richmond, Virginia, um, in 2006. Lee got rid of some of his corporations, which he had been ordered, well, he had been told by Judge Gerald Bruce Lee, uh, the federal district court in uh, Arlington or Richmond, I'm not sure which, Virginia, um, to liquidate his assets and bring the money back into the country. And the 4.5T was the first exercise in that. That money was wire transferred by the People's Bank in 1996 and immediately disappeared 
down the rat hole. Ah. So, I mean, he, when he was ordered to do this, he was very willing to comply. He wanted to do this, perhaps. He, or did he see this as a fulfillment of his promise to the American public, or did he know? Absolutely. Okay. It was a, a promise he made. He and Ronald Reagan were friends, and it was a promise he had made to Ronald Reagan. So that $4 trillion-plus dollars disappeared, disappeared off the books. And um, so where is the other $23 trillion? Do we know? Well, that's why they, when they brought him back from Switzerland, by the way, I have all the court transcripts from Switzerland, too, and he, they put him in prison, filed no charges against him whatsoever, kept him in prison four and a half months, 134 days, in Lausanne, Switzerland, and, and this was done on the basis of a promise from a, a uh, revenue agent in Wisconsin named Dennis Ullman, who, you know, he was going to get all the information for this tax evasion charge. Well, it didn't come, and Yitzhak Rabin sent him a coded message because Leo had $10 billion to give to the Palestinian and and Jewish authorities on their peace process. And that's why Yitzhak Rabin was inquiring, and suddenly the Swiss got very cold feet, they put him on an airplane on November 17th at gunpoint and sent him back to New York. He was put in prison for two days in Brooklyn, federal prison, taken before Magistrate Aline Ross, Judge Ross, who immediately threw the entire case out. He walked out of that courthouse a free man, and in the meantime, Ullman had contacted the New York police who rearrested him, put him in jail again in Brooklyn, on the promise that they were going to be, he was going to be extradited on some kind of charges from Wisconsin, and they didn't have the charges. He sat there for a month before Wisconsin got it put together, and I've just been doing a big investigative deal on that. And the cases that were filed to get that extradition, Richard, were those bogus cases, the tax warrants that had been issued back in the 1980s, the early 80s, and in which three judges had come out with firm decisions saying Lee Wanta was not responsible for any of that debt or tax debt. And while he's sitting in, in a Kettle Moraine Correctional Facility in, in Wisconsin or wherever, was he approached by anyone who said, listen, give us the, the golden keys to this $23 trillion and you can walk away? Was, did anyone make it known to him that's what no, they wanted? No, what they decided to do, <clears throat> they tried to get him committed, for one thing, and a very brave chief mental health psychiatrist at um, Winnebago, Con, Dr. Connie Lee, just said the only people who are crazy here are the people in Madison who are filing these charges. There's absolutely nothing wrong with this man. Can and, I ask you, where where is Leo today? Is he Is he... Out of prison, in prison, in oh, hiding? He got out of prison. He got out of prison in mm, 2001, just uh, before or just after, I can't remember the exact date right now, um, of 9-11. And I have been to Oklahoma twice. I've talked with his case manager while he was in prison there. If you look at his Department of Prison Records, it shows the entire time he was in prison in Oklahoma, which was from uh, 98 until 2001, his records indicate he was in New Orleans in prison. 
And, and uh, why doesn't he go public and say to the American public directly, listen, I have $23 trillion. I could wipe out our, uh, the deficit. I don't know what the, the federal, the, the debt uh, is now. It's uh, what, $16 trillion. So he could wipe out the, 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 the debt. That's absolutely right. In one fell and he swoop. has gone public. Have you tried to get anything published in, in the media in the <laughs> United States of America, Richard? Yeah, fair enough. Yes, Can't exactly. do it. That's why I'm here talking to you. Exactly. That's why I write about it in my articles. Try to get it's not the safest thing in the world to write about because this all involves Soros, it involves all kinds of people. So he wants to give it back, he can't because he knows if he if he wrote a check to the US Treasury it would just it would it would uh, it would be gobbled up by the, the what the Federal Reserve uh, and its member banks. Uh, well bear in mind, well he the reason they put him in prison and then they put him on a school bus in the middle of the night from Kettle Moraine, where four attempts were made on his life, by the way, when they figured out they couldn't get him into a mental hospital, which would have given them access then to the money. And they sent him to Oklahoma. They went around to the banks around the world where they were able to identify the accounts by using Promise Software, which was a, if you want to get a really good story, look up P-R-O-M-I-S Software put out by the Enslaw Company, that tracks all of the money that goes around uh, the world. And, and they went to those banks and told them Leo Wanta was dead. And that's how they got their, mon- their hands on a lot of the $23 trillion. A lot of it is gone. Okay. Yeah. Oh, dear. All well, right. it's not so much gone as it is they're using it. How do you think they manipulate these markets, the gold market, the silver market, my word. Listen, um, Marilyn, we will do a part two. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll be in touch. I thank you for this, and I, I, I know that we've piqued a lot of interest out there, and I will uh, uh, post links to all of those uh, important uh, documents that you've passed on to me so people can follow up on their own. In the meantime, thank you. We'll speak soon. Good. God bless. Marilyn Barnwell, Leo Wanta, and the missing $27.5 trillion, and you can learn much more at the website www.richardserrett.com. Welcome back. Welcome to the program. And uh, once again, a uh, a fine how do you do to WKAC 1080 in Huntsville, Alabama, our new affiliate here on The Conspiracy Show. Good to have you aboard. And we hope there's uh, more to come, so stay tuned. Uh, We are um, going to embark on a, a discussion Really, probably the most important discussion one can have these days, and that has to do with how we got to where we are. And where we are right now is, I guess, on the precipice uh, of uh, perhaps worldwide depression. Uh, We just seem to continuously avoid the inevitable, though, by paper-overing the problem, uh, printing more money, 
uh, devaluing currencies and so forth. It's all very complicated, but it's all very vital to understand, and we're going to try and do that uh, right now with our next guest. He is a recognized scholar whose credentials include a PhD in philosophy from the University of Oxford. How about that? Oxford. His literary contribution is a veritable resume unto itself covering such fields as Nazi Germany, sacred literature, physics, finances, the Giza pyramids, and music theory. He's a renowned researcher with an eye to assimilate a tremendous amount of background material. He's able to condense the best scholastic research and publication and draw insightful new conclusions on complex and controversial subjects, and we're going to talk about that right now. And uh, we're going to go back uh, to one of his earlier books. It's called Babylon's Banksters, The Alchemy of Deep Physics, High Finance, and Ancient Religion. What do all of these things have to do with each other? We're about to find out. A great pleasure to welcome back to The Conspiracy Show, Joseph Farrell. Hello, Joseph. How are you, my friend? Pretty good, Richard. Thanks for having me back on. I, I'm I'm pleased to hear you're getting affiliates down here in in, in the states. So oh, congratulations. Well, we're we're gonna we're we're building it one brick at a time. A couple of weeks ago, Excellent. we welcomed uh, a radio station in Asheville, North Carolina. So uh, cool. Huntsville, Alabama, is number two in the list. Hopefully, will continue to grow. Joseph, oh, here, here. a recent conversation with Marilyn uh, Magruder Barnwald about Leo Wanta and the missing $27.5 trillion, a story I'm sure you're, <laughs> you're most familiar with. Well, sort of. I, I've been so busy that I actually I've been kind of submerged and underwater. I just, uh, I just finished the sequel to Babylon's Banksters last Wednesday and got that off to the publisher. So... I've been kind of I've been kind of out of the loop, but you know, no amount of missing money these days would be a surprise. Indeed, uh, you know, we obviously within within an hour we don't have time to right. to to address a lot of the nuances. But how did we get into this problem where we are? Uh, you know, this I guess starting in two thousand and eight with this latest uh, collapse the subprime uh, collapse, they're calling it the subprime loan collapse. How did this start? Who's well, responsible? That, yeah, that depends on, on where you want to draw the line. And obviously, from from the title of the book that we're discussing tonight, I tend to draw the line very, very far back <laughs> in history. Um, and it really begins, I think, in ancient times when you see the the rise of, of, for want of a better expression, an international bullion brokering class, all right? And this is very important to the story. It's, it's very important uh, for people to understand what I'm about to say, because if we trace that story forward, you can trace it literally from ancient times forward into modern ones in a fairly unbroken chain of concepts and methodologies, all right? And this, this is the key to the whole question. Back in in ancient times, we have to deal with one general kind of basic phenomenon regarding the bullion trade, and that is that the East, the Orient, tended to value silver more highly than gold, whereas the West tended to value gold more highly than silver. Now, obviously, that's that's kind of a generalized cultural expression. We're not talking about regional market conditions or anything of the sort, but once you understand that, then you see something begin to happen. Back in ancient Samaria, money, for all intents and purposes, was a debt-free instrument. 
that was issued on clay tablets as a as a receipt on the surpluses of the state warehouse. In other words, it was a receipt, if we want to put it in modern terms, on, on the gross domestic product, on the gross national product. So it was essentially circulated debt-free, but it was it was circulated by the state and in connection with the temple, with, with religion, all right? This is where the story kind of begins, because you see this international bullion brokering class attempting to replace those kinds of receipts with something that has the ability to be traded internationally, and that, of course, is bullion. Once they they set up their trade, then you begin to see a connection between these bullion brokers, between the rise of of slavery, because you have to have slaves to mine the bullion to make the coins to pay your armies. So in other words, you start you start to get into kind of the ancient version of the military-industrial complex, you know, a, a never-ending cycle of, of slavery and bullion trade and so on and so forth. But, so that didn't end, uh, that didn't begin with the end of the Eisenhower administration. It no. goes back a little bit further. <laughs> Believe it or not, you know. So, you know, what this does in effect, Richard, is on the local scale, it means that this class of people attempt to drive out these, uh, for want of a better expression, these kinds of debt-free credit instruments, uh, bills of exchange and so on, effectively what some of them were, and to replace them with coinage. So you see the rise of coinage uh, during the, the what Carl Jaspers called the Great Axial Age in, in from about the eighth to the fourth century BC, you know, depending on where you look, but because because a right. gold coin was transportable, you could move it was mobile. Right. You could move it from from country right. to country, uh, right. and also uh, because when you had debt free money, that's very limiting for empire building. Yes, exactly, exactly. So you see the rise of this class. Now, if we jump forward a bit, you you see them during the the high renaissance and and uh, the high middle ages you see the same sort of thing um you see a bullion brokering class and and it's particularly focused and fixed uh, on on venice but again you see this this attempt to manipulate the bullion trade between the orient and the west and and venice was was just uh extremely practiced at this. It was able to manipulate gold or silver gluts or famines, depending on the way the market was blowing and, and whose currency they wanted to undermine. So this is not a new story. Um, if we bring it forward into modern times, I think then you you would have to look at First of all, the attempt by by Abraham Lincoln to to break the the back of of this private money class that had a monopoly on money issuance, of course, during the Civil War, and even earlier than that with with Andrew Jackson, and to bring the story forward to modern times a bit more, you have a similar sort of thing being practiced by uh, Hitler and the Nazis and inside of Nazi Germany, and to uh, to a similar extent or in kind of a similar way, you have some of this going on with, with communist China. So there's this big tug of war. And and I want to be very clear here, Richard. There there needs to be a philosophical discussion about the nature of money and who should be the power that issues it. I'm, I'm certainly not in the central banking camp. 
but there's a there's a number of people out there now advocating you know a return to some sort of modified bullion standard. Well, my point in writing these books is that this is how the rise of that class got started. Um, it's not a magical cure-all. In other words, we need we need to take a very long historical view. No, not, yeah. In other words, you're arguing against going back to the gold standard because, well, who's controlling the, the bullion? Who's controlling the gold? The exactly. same class that instituted these central banking systems around the world. In the U.S., it's the Federal Reserve, right. uh, the Bank of England. And these. this is the class that wrested control of the issuance uh, of of currency uh, and the printing of money away from the state, right? And uh, uh, and so we no longer have debt free money, right? They create money literally from thin air and then right. charge interest, and that's how they make their untold uh, uh, wealth. So right. yeah, not a return to the gold standard, but a return to debt free money. Yeah, it's a discussion I think we need to have. Um, you know, the the attempts to to return to that in the past have been either more or less successful, depending on the example you look at. Of course, it, it was done in China, you know, in, in very, very ancient times. And, of course, like many governments, they ended up inflating their currency and, and you know, having numerous currency recalls. But on the other hand... It's important to note that during those periods, the the ancient Chinese economy was was fairly flourishing. So what I'm really trying to get at here, Richard, is people need to kind of wake up and, and, and we need to start having a deep philosophical discussion on what money is and who it represents, all right? And you raise a very important philosophical point here. If the state is issuing money then that money more or less represents either the crown or or you know the type of government or the people issuing the money versus a private monopoly so this is the key point here um, i don't even like to call monetized debt you know the system that most countries are under now i don't even like to call monetized debt money i think it's a facsimile of money and and it's two very different things indeed and you mentioned uh those um, uh, periods in history when a regime has tried to fight back against the system. You mentioned Nazi Germany, and, and you're yes. careful to point out in your book that, you know, here was this uh, murderous uh, criminal uh, gang, the, the, the Hitler and right. his, his henchmen, the Nazis, uh, right. and, you know, obvious, you know, we've documented their, their crimes against humanity, but all, the point you're making here is they had at least part of the equation right, that they were right. fighting... Um, um, to 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 wrest control of the issuance of currency, uh, right. but certainly that does not forgive anything that they uh, they, they they did. Uh, but there's obviously more to to that 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 story. There is a connection between uh, money, right, and as you call it, deep physics, the alchemy of deep yes. physics, because. Well, let's well let's talk about what was going on uh, in Nazi Germany, for example. Sure. And we'll do that uh, on the other side. You've sure. talked about uh, the, uh, the the Nazis' pursuit of of free energy in a number of your uh, previous books. So we'll 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 connect the dots between high finance uh, and deep physics with Joseph Farrell, author of numerous books, too too numerous to mention. But uh, we're here to talk about Babylon's Banksters, Part One tonight on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away.
shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Welcome back. Joseph Farrell is here. The book is Babylon's Banksters. This is part one, and he's busy uh, getting part two uh, ready for publication. And I just want to crib uh, a couple of paragraphs here quickly from uh, from your book, Joseph. Uh-huh. Uh, we're talking about Nazi Germany, physics and f- uh, finance fully rationalized. This relationship between finance and physics was, in modern times, first clearly perceived by that nation which not only established state credit or st- state created debt free money, but which also sponsored a variety of secret research projects into free energy physics and technologies. Nazi Germany. You go on to point out that um, uh, most people are aware that various private financial powers in the West, uh, the Rockefellers, were instrumental in placing Hitler and the National Socialist Party into power in Germany. We've talked about that pr- previously on the program and, right. and uh, um, uh, Prescott Bush and so forth. What right. most do not realize is how quickly Hitler turned on his backers and refused to play ball by the same old Rockefeller rules. So, now that Hitler has complete autocratic authority, mm-hmm. he does something, as you point out, that gr- American greenbackers could only dream about. Take total control of the economy, which right. meant what in terms of the banking establishment? Well, the Nazis do two things. Um, the first, as, I, as you read there, was they created a system of, of debt-free money. All right, They were called Fader bills, or in some cases, MIFO bills. But they were essentially uh, kind of the the German equivalent of of an American United States note. In other words, a a piece of paper that was circulated debt free directly by the Treasury, all right, with no central bank involvement whatsoever, and therefore it was interest free. The other thing that the Nazis do, and this is quite the crucial point is that they began a number of very, very secret projects during uh, the period before the war, and they continued them uh, throughout the war, and in my opinion, continued some of them after the war. That's, you know, (laughs) that's another part of the story. But what they did, Richard, was they were attempting to find new sources of energy. They They were quite literally attempting to make Germany energy independent. And that meant, of course, that they had to find new sources of energy that were not requiring petroleum and therefore beholden to sources that were more or less exclusively in the hands of the very same Western bankers. All right. Now, in my opinion, they were relatively successful, at least in coming up with prototype technologies to do this. Um, you mentioned free energy. and. I think what they were trying to do was essentially find a technology that would allow them to tap into what uh, quantum physicists call the zero-point energy. And there is indication that they may have had some sort of success, albeit very halting and, and kind of preliminary in that. But we can kind of get a glimpse as to why this would be upsetting to the banking powers because of the way they treated Nikola Tesla, who was simply essentially trying to do the same thing. Uh, we all remember the story of J.P. Morgan, of course, shutting down his, his project on, on Long Island to beam electrical power anywhere in the world. Uh, For free, essentially, because you, you, can, yes. yeah, you can't right. meter it if it's going through the air. Uh, right, right. <laughs> well, we, we need to point out a couple of things here. One, uh-huh. um, I need to understand, our listeners need to understand, what is the connection between um, 
issuing f- a debt-free money and free energy? Because one would, it's almost counterintuitive. One would think that if yeah. you, you have a, a, um, um, a fiat money um, system and you have fractional reserve banking so that you can, you have unlimited credit, in other words. You right. can print money, um, uh, you know, until the cows come home, which is what we have now. Right. That would allow you to dump. I mean, we have black ops projects that are dumping, you know, untold billions and billions, maybe even trillions of dollars into research projects. Right. So if you go back to a, a, a debt-free currency issued by the state, mm-hmm. how does that allow you to pour money into free energy projects? Well, the connection really is in the conceptualization, and this is where I think many people get led astray as to what I'm really talking about here. Debt-free money issued by the state is essentially an open system. In other words, the the state issues money in response to market conditions. All right, that's that's the key here. If if there is need for more money in circulation, you do it. If if there's need for less, you do it. The the central banks, on the other hand, perpetually inflate the currency and therefore devalue the value of currency. In other words, you're dealing with kind of a zero-sum game. You have a certain X amount of limited resources, and that's certainly true of energy. And this is why I mentioned energy. It's certainly true of energy. So as you inflate the currency, the cost of energy in terms of the units you have to pay in that currency for it goes up, and the value of your currency goes down. This is not what the Nazis are doing. What they're trying to do is, is they're setting up a currency system that allows them to expand the credit of the state, while at the same time they are pursuing energy systems that are not locked into this scarce resource, uh, non-renewable energy resource system that we have now. So in other words, they're taking double aim at the whole structure of the system. Uh, That's that's the key crucial point that, that people have to understand here. And again, one of the things I'm trying to point out, Richard, in Babylon's Banksters is that this, this whole association of, of finance and physics, it really is very, very old. It, it, it really kind of boggles the mind just how old it is, but, but it's definitely there. And you see it, you're going to see it, I just kind of want to give uh, people a heads up about the second book in the series. You're going to see that association between physics and finance emerge very, very clearly during the high Middle Ages and, and, and the Renaissance. You're going to see it very, very clearly. Okay, the other thing that we need to point out uh, about Nazi Germany, lest people think that, uh, you know, we're, we're, u- we're holding Nazi Germany up as a model. Oh, uh, no. No, uh, <laughs> because the, the important thing to point out here, too, is that y- y- while they were, were essentially thumbing their nose at the, the, uh, the international money power, the, right. the, of course, the fatal, horrible mistake that they made was to identify as you know world jewelry as being at the center of this yeah, international exactly. monetary system and of exactly. course that we know where that led to the the, the exactly. you know the, the holocaust but um, they i mean they were correct that there was an international money power sure uh, but they might as well have also uh, sent uh, uh, protestants to the gas chamber because uh, exactly. there were just as many protestants uh, okay so there were some some jews that were in, involved in banking so there were many protestants that were involved in banking right. the international money uh, system is not uh, as we you know can never um, repeat often enough is not a jewish conspiracy no no okay it's, so it's, it's it's a matter of class uh, and this is 
this is where you know so many people run run astray. But you know, my whole point in writing this series is in part, Richard, to combat this idea that you're dealing with kind of a monolithic uh, religio-racist conspiracy against the rest of mankind. Because exactly. certainly, certainly when you turn back the clock and you look at, at things like Babylon or Egypt or Imperial Rome or then later, you know, Venice or Genoa or uh, Florence, you're certainly not dealing there <laughs> exclusively with with international Zionism, you know, the last time I looked, the Medici's and the Borgias and the Contarini's were, were not part of that crowd. Exactly, exactly. Well, thank you. That, you know, that's very important uh, to point yeah. out, and I, we thank you for that. So, um, by by unbridling oneself uh-huh. uh, or unyoking oneself right. from from the international, you know, monetary powers, right. you now have unlimited debt-free money to pour into things like free energy. Right. So, right. and, 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 um, and that, I mean, so there is kind of this, this two-prong, uh, I mean, those are the two huge issues obviously facing us today. Exactly. Are cri- crippling debts and, and uh, energy security. So, right. but is there, I guess I'm, I, what I'm, what I'm not getting is mm-hmm. the, the connection between these bankers and I mean, do they have this this class of international monetary uh, 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 or these these international banksters? Do they have some secret uh, uh, knowledge regarding free energy? Oh boy, Richard, what a question! Um, <laughs> that really opens up Pandora's box, and I. I don't really directly address that question in Babylon's Banksters. I kind of hint at it. I, I definitely directly go after it in, in the sequel to Babylon's Banksters. So I'm going to call, crawl way out on a limb here and advise people that my answer is in part exceeding the evidence that thus far I've argued. All right, But my guess is, yes, they do. Uh, they do have some sort of secret knowledge that at least indicates enough to them. I'm not saying it's complete or exhaustive knowledge. I'm, I'm simply suggesting that they have some sort of knowledge that indicates that there is a very, very different kind of, if you will, physics or cosmology than we have been taught publicly. And that that physics or cosmology is intimately and directly tied to the type of financial system that that could threaten them. After all, let's turn the clock back and, and go back to what I said at the beginning of the interview. When we start this story, we're starting out contrary to almost every what every econ- economist will tell you. We do not start with barter systems. We start this financial journey with credit instruments, all right, with uh, what's debt-free money. Then we move to coinage, to bullion. Then later on, we reintroduce credit instruments in relationship to that bullion, and basically the modern system comes out of of that uh, occurrence during the Middle Ages and, and Renaissance. So in other words, I do think that they had some sort of knowledge because if you turn back the clock and go back to those countries that did have these types of of, uh, 
credit money systems, uh, Sumer and China and so on. They also had a very interesting cosmology. They had a, a, a kind of uh, idea that the physical medium is a very fecund information-creating medium. In other words, it wasn't really, in a certain sense, a zero-sum game as it is for modern physics. And therefore, they didn't have kind of a zero-sum economy either. So all of this is tied together, and, and, and my real point in writing these books is to get people to turn back the clock and, and look at how deeply interconnected these concepts are with each other. You know, it's, it's interesting if you go back uh, into uh, American history, yeah. and you had the, those who were advocating, um, uh, people like uh, Hamilton, who were yeah. advocating that the American adopt a central banking system because it would make available to them unlimited credit so that they could build, for example, uh, the, uh, I guess it would have been the Erie Canal right. uh, uh, and, and these huge, you know, these huge projects. projects right. and, uh, and then you had others, um, was it Van Buren that, uh, that, yes. that Alexander um, fought in a duel? Uh, was no, Vi- that was actually Aaron Burr. Aaron Burr, I'm sorry, Aaron Burr. But, but he, you know, he, so he had the other side, they were arguing ag- against central banking. And, of course, we right. all know what Jefferson said about central banks and so forth. Exactly. So he had this titanic struggle. But the argument was always, without a central banking system, you can't have these huge projects. Uh, we wouldn't have the, 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 the capital available to us. But what you're telling us is, no, that's not, that's not the case. It's not true at all, because, again, you, you, had, you had very huge projects taking place in Nazi Germany uh, that, that really boggled the mind. Now, of course, the, other, the, the black part of that project is, is that it was not only funded in part by, by this sort of credit system, but by a massive program of, of looting, you know, wherever the Nazis' army, armies went. They were looting and pillaging, and then, of course, on top of all of that, they added slave labor. So you had, you know, this is this is something that most people don't appreciate, but you had an enormous black projects bureaucracy inside of Nazi Germany. This is why they were able to pursue so many and so widely divergent, almost kooky projects in some cases of, of secret weapons research. So, you know, it's, it's not true that, that this needs to be the case. And, and uh, I, think, I think the real, the bottom line, Richard, is that those who are advocating this kind of central banking scheme are simply in it for themselves. They, they are in it for their own power at everybody else's expense because it's a tremendously empowering sort of system that, that uh, they always set up. Joseph Farrell, Babylon's Banksters, when we'll come back, we'll, we'll talk about how a number of uh, countries today are uh, fighting back against this uh, international uh, monetary power system. And uh, some of those countries, interesting, they've been sort of vilified in the mainstream press. I'm talking about countries like China and Russia. Could there be a connection? Perhaps we'll discover that when we come back. Stay with us here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. In the darkness, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To see the light, call Richard now at 416-360-0740 or toll-free in Ontario at 1-866-740-4740. 
And Dr. Joseph Farrell is uh, with us. His website is GizaDeathStar.com. Giza, as in the pyramids, G-I-Z-A, DeathStar.com. GizaDeathStar.com. And uh, I've lost count how many books uh, uh, you've, you've published, but um, the, Giza, the Giza Death Star, uh, the Giza Death Star Deployed, Reich of the Black Sun, the SS Brotherhood of the Bell, the Cosmic War. I think that's when I sort of caught up with you, uh, 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 Joseph, right. uh, around 2007. Secrets of the All Unified right. Field, the Nazi Internationale, the Philosopher's Stone, Babylon's Banksters, which we're discussing tonight, Roswell and the Reich. LBJ and the Conspiracy to Kill Kennedy, Genes, Giants, Monsters, and Men, The Grid of the Gods, and you're currently working on three books all due out later this year. (laughs) Thank God you have time to do this show. I don't know when you sleep, Joseph. But uh, uh, listen, it's interesting. You know, again, I I have to crib from from your book, Babylon's Banksters. We talk about uh, what's going on in China, and it's just booming their economy. Uh, and uh, obviously, you know, they're, they're just cleaning up at the Olympics, and there's obviously a connection there. But you point out here, there's a little-known aspect of China's booming economy that Western financiers, economists, and media mandarins are loath to discuss, and that is that China's money is created by China, not borrowed from private bankers. And then you go on to point the, the irony, this, the idea that they're, they're making debt-free money, this is, they've taken a page right out of the American federal constitution. Right. Right. Fascinating. Well, this, Richard, you're you're opening up such a a huge area of discussion with China and their money system that you know it really behooves us to spend a little time with it um, because this has huge geopolitical implications. For the moment, the the Chinese currency, the renminbi, is is pegged to the dollar. All right. But what we're seeing and what we've seen happening in the last few years as as the West and, and the American empire, and, and there's no doubt in my mind that it has to be qualified as an empire now, as it has overstretched itself and, and just become uh, brutal and reckless with its wars and covert operations and so on and so forth. There has been a quiet reaction taking place geopolitically in the world between the two two chief Asian powers, which would be, of course, Russia and China. They recently announced that they were going to conduct their bilateral international trade directly in their own currencies and and not peg them to the dollar. All right, this this was a huge huge thing, and this has now extended itself to. Uh, similar deals with Iran. India has indicated that it wants to to consider some similar arrangements. There have been quiet moves in Japan uh, that preceded the Fukushima disaster, which I think are related to it, that the Japanese were attempting to to enter some sort of rapprochement with, with China. This has huge geopolitical implications. Now, here's why this idea of debt-free currency is so very important and why it has, I think, the, the oligarchs of, of the Anglo-American elite a little panicked. If you're dealing with a, an economy like China's, of the size of China, with a debt-free currency, this means that China can go to nations like Libya or the Sudan, think Darfur here, folks, and offer them essentially debt-free money 
to improve the infrastructure of those countries. And this is precisely what the Chinese have been doing. In other words, they can beat the terms of the International Monetary Fund, which is basically a sock puppet for, for American geopolitical interests. They can beat the terms of the World Bank. They can beat the terms of all of those central banking institutions, in other words, that are basically shills for Anglo-American foreign policy and, and geopolitics. This is why you see, in response, the United States in particular, but sometimes in conjunction with its NATO allies, expanding its bases around the world and stepping up covert activity. Because under the system that we're under, quite frankly, we cannot compete in terms of, of the value of money. The cost of our money is too high. <laughs> that's, that's the bottom line. So this has huge, huge geopolitical implications. And, you know, the more the West tries to, to tighten the, the noose around China, the more you see the Asian powers, India, China, Burma, uh, Indonesia, Russia, and so on, drawing closer and closer together. So this this is a huge story. This is the financial aspect behind what's going on, and there is underlying the financial aspect, Richard, a geopolitical aspect too. And and people need to understand that as well, with respect to what's going on in Europe right now. There's sure. an underlying or, or oh yeah, in there's an. Uh, even Syria. I mean, you connect the dots. Sure. All those countries that are aligning now with the BRIC countries, right. uh, Brazil, Russia, India, China, right. uh, they become targeted by NATO, the United States, which have become essentially the proxies or the, right. the, the bully, the, the, the bully uh, division for this international money uh, system. Uh, we'll right. uh, take a time out. Back with Joseph Farrell, Babylon's Banksters, here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. The owners of the system are asleep. Now we can play. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Joseph Farrell is with us. The book is Babylon's Banksters. This is part one, and uh, the sequel to that book is... Uh, going to be available to you uh, sometime this year, Joseph? Uh, no, I actually suspect it'll be next year, Richard. Um, the publisher that's publishing that is, is a more traditional publisher, and it usually takes them about oh, six to nine months to get a book out. So it'll be sometime, I suspect, uh, next summer. All right. But uh, for now, we have uh, uh, part one, and that's what we're discussing tonight. Right. Now, uh, it's interesting when you, again, we're connecting the, t the dots geopolitically uh, right. to... Uh, you know, the current financial uh, system. And uh, we were talking about, about China. And you mentioned yeah. Libya. China was yeah. making debt-free money uh, available to Libya. And, and Gaddafi, shortly before the um, insurgency happened, and it was, I, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty confident, an outside insurgency uh, that oh, yeah. was disguised as some, some sort of a civil war. Yeah. Uh, but, but he was looking at sort of uh, forming a a, a pan-African debt-free currency, was he not? Yes, he was. He was. And, and it was precisely in order, again, to break out of the, the chokehold of, of the Western central banks, you know, that cluster of banks, central central banks in, in Switzerland, the Bank of International Settlements, the IMF, the World Monetary Fund, World Bank, and so on and so forth. Um, 
all of this was being done, and it was. I think, to a certain extent, Gaddafi was acting a little bit as China's cat's paw. So we're, in other words, looking at these smaller countries acting as proxies for the big players behind the scenes. And I agree with you, Richard. There is no doubt in my mind that these uprisings uh, across North Africa and then on into to Mesopotamia have been staged by largely by the West, because they follow that familiar pattern of similar uprisings that were in Kosovo, uh, the so-called Orange Revolution in the Ukraine. All of these things are, you know, they, they fit the tactic that we've seen the West uh, developing and perfecting as a means of covert warfare against regimes that it does not like. And the key that they're using it's it's informative to note is is human rights you know they've turned human rights into a weapon of covert operations and i i caution people not to buy into this uh because you know the west and particularly the united states supported in in the last uh, decades since the end of the second world war some some horrendous dictatorships that you know had horrible human rights records they've simply changed the game but the, the the name of the game remains geopolitics and it remains finance and and the real bottom line is is the competition between two very different philosophies of money that's that's what's still the bottom line after all these millennia and in russia uh they yes. too i mean putin has are they now issuing debt free money they, they they don't have a central banking system there do they i no i i think they do and i'm is, that's an en- interesting question that i really don't know the answer to richard i think that in russia's case we have a bit of a different situation um i can tell you this that if you view putin as a kind of a neo-Stalinist or an authoritarian. Uh, in, in other words, if you, if you buy Western propaganda, you're really not understanding what Putin is about. He comes out of that long tradition within Russia of, of more or less Russia for the Russians. And his moves against people like Khodorovsky and so on and so forth have been moves against the Russian oligarchs that were playing ball with the Western central bankers. In other words, Putin is acting against those people. And it's of a piece with his pronouncements that he's made ever since 2007 at, you know, those NATO conferences where he was very firm in warning the West that it was clear as far as the Russians were concerned that the expansion of NATO was to do nothing but encircle Russia. And Again, I think he read the situation exactly correctly. I think that's exactly what the West was up to. The whole game has been about dominating those energy supplies in the Eurasian heartland. And the inevitable result of that attempt to dominate those supplies and to emasculate Russia was simply to create this reaction now that you referred to earlier with the rise of the BRICS nations, Brazil, Russia, India, China. You know, that is an extremely powerful block. And it is not a block that the West ultimately can stand up to if it stays together. So do you do you foresee then this this current monetary system that we have, uh, this you know, that's that's saddling us with well, it's, it's enslaving us is what it's doing. Yeah. Do you yeah. see this nearing collapse? Oh yeah, I do. I do. Um now, how that collapse is going to come, you know, I'm not a financial advisor. I do want to, I do want to caution people. I'm simply, you know, a hack from South Dakota that's looking at a certain interesting set of, of 
dots and trying to connect them. A um, hack with a degree from Oxford. Come on, Jackson. Well, but nevertheless, <laughs> a hack. <laughs> Hardly. But um, I, I do see it happening. I, I don't see the current system, in other words, as surviving without some drastic radical change. But the question really is, is how that change is going to come about. And we need to add to this factor something else, Richard. And, and I referred to Venice earlier because the second book in the series is largely about that period of history and about Venice, all right? At that time, the the world was going through one of those periodic 500-year cycles of change. Now, we happen to be entering a similar period. In other words, we're at the beginning of another one of those 500-year periods of cyclic change. But the difference now, Richard, is that this period is unlike anything previously in all of human history. The scale of it far exceeds anything that we've been through before, and the the depth of it and the breadth of it, both technologically, philosophically, economically, culturally, everything is happening at the same time. So we have to factor this into the equation because it means that these financial oligarchs in, in London and, and New York City and, and Washington and so on, these, these oligarchs are factoring all of these things into the equation too. And this is why I think you're seeing definite signs of desperation and panic amongst them because they are clamping down as fast as they can on what reserves of power base that they have left. And that's kind of scary to me. Yes, they're not going to give this up without a fight, obviously. No, no. No, they're not. So this uh, this can, could be a very a, a bloody a, a transition from yeah. from the old system to the new one. And I guess the question is, could, can we ultimately survive it, given what's at stake? Well, I've said before on, on other shows, and, and it bears repeating here on yours, Richard, that we're entering a, a situation where we could be looking at, you know, a kind of global version of the Thirty Years' War from, you know, 1618 to, to uh, 1648 that occurred in Europe. And, you know, that was long and protracted, quite bloody, and, and um, you know, ended up bringing in or kind of ushering in the modern era. So we're looking at a similar period with similar possibilities. And it is interesting in that context to note that the American military has been making noises in its publications that this is precisely what they see ahead. They see a prolonged period of protracted conflict, you know, regional conflicts taking place all over all over the globe. And it's all part of this contest now between the the geopolitical realignment in Asia and what's left of, of the West. The key player here for the moment, at least as far as the West is concerned, is going to be Germany. And this is why I say behind the European crisis you have a lot of geopolitics. And I think it's being engineered simply to try and maintain Germany within the Western camp and prevent any sort of direct rapprochement between Germany and, and Russia and China. Is it, is it possible? I mean, I've heard rumblings that given 
the the sinkhole that is now uh, the eurozone. Right. That Germany. Uh, I mean, keep in mind that, that the billions that they've poured into Greece. Yes. The hundreds of billions of euros they poured into Greece in the last four years, and yet, you know, the world can't uh, cobble together two billion dollars to alleviate, uh, you know, starvation in in, exactly. uh, in Western Africa. It's absolutely abhorrent. Yes, uh, it is. I agree. Um, but is it possible then that Germany is going to say enough is enough? We're going back to the Deutschmark, and the rest of you people are on your own, and that well, that, that Deutschmark I... might be debt-free money. Well, again, yeah, I, you know, I just saw a poll today, as a matter of fact, right before I got on your show, that, and I don't remember what the poll was, but apparently something like 71% now of Germans think that it would be a good idea to get out of the Eurozone. So in other words, the only thing holding Germany in the Eurozone are, are the financial and political oligarchies in that country. If it were up to the German people right now, they'd be gone. And in a certain sense, it's it's only reasonable to see why. Germany's largest trading partners are in Asia. Germany draws most of its energy from Russia. So in other words, it's in the German national and geopolitical interest to have closer ties with those countries. There's little else keeping Germany in the Eurozone other than its you know common European culture with, with the rest of those countries. But you can't expect uh, the German people to go along forever and, and bail out everybody else. Their economy simply isn't big enough, and nor is anybody else's for that matter. So, you know, you can't blame them. What would happen um, to a leader? Well, I, I think I know the answer, and we've seen this played out in history repeatedly, but what would happen to a leader of a country? Uh, let's say uh, even a presidential candidate who, who would who would declare that we are going to return to the, uh, the, the, the federal constitution and that the Congress shall be responsible for the issuance of debt-free currency. Uh, someone, well, Ron Paul has certainly hinted at that. Um, right. Assuming that they, they could get elected, which doesn't seem likely, but what would happen right. to that candidate? Well, I suspect you, you would see the same thing happen to them as happened to the other two presidents that tried to do that, namely Lincoln and Kennedy. Uh, they're stone-cold dead. Um, I suspect you'd see the same thing. The only president that, that was not successfully assassinated that did that was Andrew Jackson. And, of course, they made several attempts on his life. So I think, you know, for for this to happen, it's really got to be a different approach. It's the people of the countries, you know, in, in your country and, and certainly in mine that need to wake up and realize what these oligarchs are and what they've been and what they've been up to. Uh, in other words, the oligarchs need to be brought to the point where they realize that they've lost their people. And at that point, they're in the same position as, as the communist apparatchiks were in, in the Soviet Union before the collapse. You know, they can press all the buttons and, and move all the levers of power, and nothing happens. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, yes. As Lenin, as Lenin once remarked, my hand is on the steering wheel, but I don't seem to be driving. I don't know yeah. what's going on. <laughs> Well, and if you're not uh, if you're not in the United States or Canada, and you try to do that, then uh, then they'll say the the the, uh, the West will claim that you have uh, a, a, an active nuclear weapons program, or that you're cozying yeah. up to Al Qaeda. Uh, right. They'll they'll find some excuse. 
uh, right. to bring in the NATO airstrikes. All right, Joseph, uh, listen, we anxiously await publication of uh, part two of Babylon's uh, Banksters and uh, just about anything else you're willing to drop our way. We're just, we're just <laughs> well, waiting, you. waiting at the edge of our seats for your next book and uh, always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me back on, Richard. been a pleasure. Joseph Farrell, GizaDeathStar.com, the website. Uh, a real pleasure spending two hours with you all. Hope you'll be back again next week. Marie Jones will be back. She was supposed to be with us a couple of weeks ago. Uh, we're going to talk time travel with Marie Jones. Hope you'll be along for that. David Gaskin, thanks for your capable production as always. In the meantime, don't be afraid. Nothing concealed that won't be revealed. Nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.